0: Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I Last time we were together kind of in a Bible studying service format like this, I was using some analogies from a sports um, type of motif talking about offense and talking about how important it is. For us as Christians, and especially for us as a church, to get on offense. And I swear, we we're look, looking there in 1 Peter chapter 1 um, regarding just some things that Peter was talking about how we get on the right side of the ball. And in that passage, if you remember, let me just remind you, he was talking about how we prepare for offense, how we get ready for offense, how we understand the difference between offense and defense, and how we know the offensive plays versus the defensive plays. Because too many times in the church, and especially in our Christian walk, We get stuck on defense and we stop striving for offense. We just kind of assume that this is the best it can be and we just accept the status quo and we just get in a defensive posture thinking, I'm just going to hope that it doesn't decrease any more than it already has. And sometimes we have that attitude when it comes to the culture around us. We just hope that it doesn't devolve anymore. We hope they don't add more cuss words. They don't add more graphic nudity. They don't add more violence. We just hope that it won't get worse and and I think so many times we get stuck in this idea of of just believing that we are on perpetual defense and we stop striving or stop trying to seek ways to get back on offense so let me just try to give you some things to hopefully maybe kind of encourage all of us uh, to think about what offense could be like and I'm just going to throw some numbers out there the first Sunday of this month we had 63 in morning service the second Sunday of this month, we had 73 in morning service. This Sunday morning, we had 78. That may say, well, Spence, what is, what is the big deal? That's a 23% increase. Now, I realize you may say, well, that's not that big of an increase. You want to get 23% more income? You want to turn the thermostat up twenty three percent? I mean, there's a twenty three percent is significant, and it's not something that I think it's a one person or or something else. But I, just the idea that over the last three weeks we have seen twenty three percent increase in our attendance on a Sunday morning, to me that's encouraging, and to me that's something that we as a church can look at and say that's positive. That is definitely a positive sign. Just this last week, we did this back-to-school bash, and I don't know, I was going to try to get a final number on the snow cone count, but I kind of skewed it. (laughs) (laughs) because I had more than one snow cone and I encouraged other people to have more than one snow cone so I was going to try to count how many snow cones we sold to try to get a count on how many people we had attend the event but then I thought that's probably not really a good way of getting my numbers because they're a little bit slanted but if you looked around we had a good crowd We had a good crowd on a Wednesday night in the humidity and in some some of the heat there for a period of time of it, and and we had a good crowd show up, had an opportunity to make contacts. There were people here, quite a few people here that don't go to church here, that don't go to church anywhere. We were able to get names and phone numbers and contact information, children's names, families' names, the teacher feed. We had over 40 of the staff, whether teachers or administrators or staff from the school system that were here, uh, fed them a great meal, and then we had that table back there underneath. That mirror was covered up with gifts and giveaways. I think that we by the time we had what was donated and, and versus what we had gathered up, we probably had close to three to four hundred dollars worth of prizes and gifts to give the teachers. Not because that we're gonna make this carnival, but to show our appreciation, we are able to make an impact. We are able to make an influence into the community around us. Just think about just these last weeks and, and people that have joined the church. I don't think offense is a moment in time. I think of offense as being forward momentum. And we've got to think about it in our own daily lives. Is there forward momentum? Is there forward momentum in our growth? Is there forward momentum in the life of the church? Is there forward momentum in what we are doing? doing instead of trying to put markers there and say well we got to be to this number by this date or we got to be to this dollar by this date or we got to have this many activities by this calendar maybe we just need to ask ourselves a question is there forward momentum taking place not just in us personally but in the life of the church so we talked about offense but then the second thing that I kind of want to follow up on that thinking about that analogy is how do you know who's on your team So thinking about the sports picture there and talking about being on offense and knowing that if you're going to be on offense, that means someone else is going to be on defense. And whether you're talking about football, talking about basketball, any sport, there's two different opposing sides. So in the church world today, how do you know who is on your team? Because... You start surveying people, and there are all forms of different ideas about religion. What the Bible means to me, what the Bible says to you, well, this is what I think, this is what I feel in my heart, this is what I believe, this is my experience, this is my tradition. They run the whole gamut of what people think or what people believe. Or, you will find people that have a wide-ranging uh, wide scope of what it means to be faithful some people they think they're being faithful showing up at church once a month some people think they're being faithful by showing up to church once a week some people think the only time they're faithful is when they're showing up at church every time the doors are open What does faithfulness look like? Now, we're not going to answer that tonight. I think faithfulness is what God is calling you to. If God's calling you to be here every time the door's open, then you need to have your backside here every time the door's are open. If you feel like you have the freedom and God has given you the conscience to say, hey, on Sundays, then I'm not trying to tell you what, we're going to make a legalistic term out of this, but what does faithfulness look like? And we look around the world today, there's a wide-ranging uh, idea of what it means to be faithful. Or just consider the different world views that we have right now. So many different people have so many different worldviews of what they think is right, wrong, what they think is acceptable, what they think, don't think is acceptable, what they think should happen in the church, what they don't think should happen in the church. When it comes to doctrine, when it comes to polity, when it comes to ecclesiology, when it, when it comes to eschatology. I mean, there are so many different opinions when it comes to life of the church. So how do we know? How do we know who's on which? Well, for the sake of tonight, we're just going to divide all of us up, not us, but we're going to divide, as far as the the world around us, we're going to divide us up in two teams. And so the question that I want to just kind of consider tonight out of 2 Timothy chapter 3 is how do we know which team you're on? Or how do you know which team the people are around you on? Or I'm going to give you here in my notes, I've got three reminders for knowing your team. So when you think about what we're going to see in a few moments of what Paul is writing to Timothy about the end times and about the people around him, he gives him three reminders saying, okay Timothy, you are there in ministry. Some people think That Timothy was, uh, obviously you knew he was one of his young pastors and they think that he may have been placed over at Ephesus or Paul may have sent him, trained him up, discipled him, sent him down to Ephesus. Was Ephesus the dream job? No, Ephesus was... A pastor. Ephesus was a church. And, you know, anytime you go to any group of people, you're going to have challenges, you're going to have rewards. And so it's one of those things he's writing to this young preacher, trying to encourage him, but also trying to prepare him and trying to disciple him via these letters because he realizes that his time is coming short and he wants Timothy to understand Timothy, I want you to continue on in faithfulness even after I'm gone. So he's reminding Timothy that in spite of the world going on around him, that there are still ways that he can know who's on his team and who isn't on his team. So in 2 Timothy chapter 3, in verse 1, this is what Paul writes. He says, "...but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. First reminder I think that Paul gives us out of this passage is is to remind Timothy that not everyone is on the same team. Not everyone is on the same team. I think sometimes we just assume that everybody is on the same team. Evan and I have had this conversation before about people that we know or people that we have a chance to work with that they don't go to church on a regular basis. They're just really good people. They're nice people, they're somewhat moral people, they're honest people. And you think about them and you think, man, these seem like some really good people. But then when you think about them spiritually, you're like, I don't know where they're at. I don't know where they're standing. And sometimes it's hard to understand that not everybody is going to go to heaven. And even the moral, even the honest, even the ones that work hard and pay their bills and provide for their families, they can still be lost and find themselves in eternity for hell. God's not going to grade you on the good things or the bad things. He's not going to grade you on how long you were married to your wife. He's going to grade you on the state of your heart and the the state of your forgiveness and the state of your salvation. And so God has reminded us and Paul is reminding Timothy that not everyone is on the same team. In fact, God gave us ways to discern the other team. Not necessarily discern our team but discern the other team. And I just read you a list. If you go back and you try to number these, I number 18 different Characteristics. Eighteen different things that Paul mentions that are characteristic of the opposing team. But there's something that I want you to grab. I want I want you to catch in all of these eighteen. There, there's a commonality between all of these eighteen. What the commonality is that all of the traits are controlled by sin and the flesh instead of the spirit the traits that you see listed there are characteristics of somebody that is living by the flesh and not by the Spirit. So Paul says, if you want to recognize who is on your team or who isn't on your team, you need to understand first of all, that not everyone is on the same team. Not everybody is serving the same God, if you will. Not everybody is seeking to be faithful. So you need to understand that when you look around, we are not all in this world today on the same team Living for the same God. You may say, well, yeah, Spence, that's obvious. But that shows up in our evangelism. And that shows up in our witness. Because, I don't know about you, but for me, I get sometimes sucked into this trap of just assuming well I'm sure they go to church or I assume they've heard about Jesus or I'm assuming that they've had an opportunity and I just assume because they're nice because they seem good in the eyes of the world because they seem pleasant or because they have this appearance I'm just assuming well we must be on the same team when it comes to our salvation the problem is is that Paul comes in and says not everyone is going to be on the same team so how it is that we know which team somebody is on well we look at their their life we look at their fruit. We we, we look at how they're living their lives. So he gives us this whole list. So when you go through this list and you look at it, he is saying these individuals are not on the team for the kingdom of God. They're not on team God. Now, you're going to look at some of these on here and you're going to think, well, but I've got issues with this and I've got issues with this. I mean, there's things that I like. There's things that I see on here that, 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 that I have been guilty of in the past. But he's saying that these characters and these traits are things that mark those that are not living for the kingdom of God, but they're living for the kingdom of this world. They're living for themselves. That's why it says that they are seekers of pleasure, uh, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. In verse 4. And we are consumed right now in a world that loves themselves and loves their possessions and loves their ideals more than they love God. And that's dangerous. And that's dangerous when we start loving the things in this world more than the Creator of this world. And I think it's important when we think about this time of offense we need to understand and we need to be reminded that not everyone is on the same team so when it comes to what then what is what are we doing here on offense we are trying to reach those that aren't on our team and we're trying to explain to them this is who Jesus is and this is why you need to repent and turn to Jesus and this is why you need to come and submit, repent confess your sins and come get on our team because we understand as he says that in the last days did you see that there in verse one Paul is saying in the last days now, there's always been debate on, well, are we in the last days? We've been in the last days ever since Jesus went back to the right hand of the Father. We've been in the last days. Well, well, how long does the last days last? We have no idea. Well, wouldn't that be mean to God not to tell us? Maybe the whole point is God wants you to be faithful. Not to be worried about counting down the days. Had lunch with uh, Amber Cox and uh, Jackson Day today. This morning at, at my parents' house, and we were talking about their marriage. And she said, and I said, "Well, when is when are y'all going to get married?" And she said, "We're going to get married June fifth I said, "My goodness, that's like eleven months away." And she said, "No, nope, it's nine months, twenty days, and so many hours." <laughs> okay, I stand corrected. I was using general terms. She had it down almost—you know—she had it down to the minute on how much longer it was. Why? Apparently she's kind of excited about this idea and apparently it's something that she's looking forward to with great anticipation. So if Jesus gave us a deadline and says, this is when I'm coming back, you can imagine what we'd all do. We would all be faithful every single day until the moment He came back, wouldn't we? No. (laughs) We would do like every college student does in their classes. They would lay up. They would waste the time. And then, the night before, they would cram and they would try to fit everything in in a rush. And that's how we live our lives. Ain't God smart enough? Because He created us, He knows the kind of people we're going to be. So He just says, you're living in the last days. Well, how long are these last days going to last? These last days are going to last until Jesus comes back. Well, then how am I supposed to live? You're supposed to live faithfully every single day. What if that means I live faithfully every single day for the next hundred years? Great. Uh, what's what's the what, what's the waste in that how, how can you count that as a loss if you live every day faithfully for the next 100 years what have you lost except for faithfulness and, and, and to god you haven't lost anything you have not lost a single thing and yet he reminds us that this idea that we are living in the end times. Now, I don't want to go around and be a date sitter or go around and say, well, this is what's going to happen here, that's what's going to happen here, or whoa, we're going to get people scared and we need to get people responding out of fear. No, we need to recognize, brothers and sisters, that the clock is running out. The clock is running out on people's lives all around us. And there are people that are dying every single day that we don't know what team they're on. And just because we're friends with them or just because we've known them for years doesn't mean we know that they're saved and doesn't mean that we have ever talked to them about their salvation. So Paul reminds Timothy, not everybody is on the same But then he gives us a second reminder. So that's the first four, sorry, the first five verses all the way down through, uh, sorry, verse four. He, He covers that, talking about that not everybody is on the same team. But then he gives another reminder to Timothy. And the second reminder is that the other team is not operating with the same goals. Look at there at verse five. He says, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. We could spend a whole month sitting there looking at what that verse means to us and how that verse plays itself out because quite honestly I, I, struggle, with, I struggle with the application because it says that he's talking about these people that are led by the flesh and led by their uh, sin instead of by the spirit and he says they have this appearance of godliness but they deny its power, avoid such people and so some people would say well Spence how in the world are we supposed to reach lost people if we're supposed to be avoiding lost people well there's all kinds of things that we need to work out right there what I think Paul is saying and this is kind of second sentence chapter 2 is what I think he's getting at is here is that you're not supposed to be cozy cozy with him you're supposed to recognize this is a lost person I'm going to reach for Jesus do I need to build relationships? yes do I need to build friendship? yes do I need to speak the truth to him? yes but is there a need to be like to them? yes and understand that we can be friends but that doesn't mean we're brothers in Christ There's a separation that comes. And so he says that the other team is not operating with the same goals. There in verse 5 he says, avoid such people. Then in verse 6 he says, for among those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. So he's giving us this picture to say that this is what the other team is doing. This is what the opposition is doing. Not only are they consumed with appearances, they're just trying to look the part, act the part, be the part. But they're always looking to sway people to their side. They're always looking to try to say, well, you know, it's not going to hurt anything. Well, it's just a one-time thing. Nobody's going to know. or It's not that big of a deal. Because they know that if they can get you, if they can bait you into the sin, then they can trap you to say, well, so you're not any different than I am. Well, you can't confront my sin because what about your sin? And it's not this idea that they try to entice you, they try to draw you in. So he says they have this appearance of godliness, but they deny the power of God. They creep in a household, capture weak women, lead them astray by their varying passions. So they're always coming in, always trying to tempt, always trying to deceive, always trying to allure people to themselves. And it's this picture that they're not operating on the same goals that we are. They're deceitful, destructive, devoid of spiritual unction. Our desire is to see people come to Christ. The world's desire is to see people come to themselves. Come to their flesh, come to their desire, come to their selfishness, come to the things that make them happy. Remember the movie Pinocchio? Pinocchio was sitting there and he had already shed... Jiminy Cricket and he gets there with the other boys there in that area and they think, hey, we're going to go down and we're going to get on that boat and we're going to go out to that island and boy, we're going to have a grand old time and they were telling him all the fun stuff they were going to do and they were going to tell him all the, all the stuff they, they, were, they were excited about and so he gets on there and when he gets out there, he realizes that it's just a trap. It's only going to be a trap. And how many people are living in this world today Living with this idea that they can dabble in sin and it won't bother them. Or they can dabble in misbehavior and it won't affect them. Or they can dabble over here and no one will know. Or they can take place in this or that. Or they can compromise. Or they can capitulate. Or they can give up. Or they can give up ground and it won't bother them. I think we need to remind ourselves every single morning what team we are on. And being the team, we need to know what goals we're living by. So Paul comes in in this passage and says, when it comes to being on offense and when it comes to finding that forward momentum, you need to understand not everybody's on the same team. The other team is not operating with the same goals as you are, so therefore there's going to be different values. There's going to be different priorities. There's going to be different things that we're going to hold to and different things that we should find pleasure in, different things that we prioritize, different things that we invest in because we have different goals. And then you get down to this third reminder. Notice he says there in verse 7. Always learning and never being able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jannie's and James opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those to Man, I think the third reminder that Paul is wanting to give Timothy, and by extension gives us, is that what separates us unites us. I'm just kind of a little play on words there, but I'm going to explain it to you as we go. What, what separates us unites us. So is using this example that he says, this opposition that is there, they're always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. This idea that they're always trying to come up with something new. They're always trying to develop some new mousetrap. They're always trying to reinvent the wheel, but they never come to pure knowledge of the truth. Now some people would say, well that means that the Bible is not understandable. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 4 and verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the vision of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and attentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom He must give an account. The writer of Hebrews wants to remind us that when it comes to the Word of God, the Word of God is very sharp in penetrating our hearts and dividing truth from error, dividing light from darkness, dividing folly from faithfulness. The Word of God is so good at trying to show us what is right and what is wrong. Some people will say, well, Spence, can can I ever fully understand the Word of God? You may never know God exhaustively, but you can know God truly. And you may never fully exhaust your understanding of the Word of God, but what you do know about the Word of God, you can know it truly. And we need to remind us that what separates us also unites us. So what separates us from the world, being the light and the darkness, should also unite us. And what is that? That is truth. Where do we get truth from? We get truth from the Word of God. Mo mentioned this morning about the opposition, and they don't have opposition to the other things in this world, but why does it seem like the world is always in opposition to the church? Always in opposition to Christianity. Well, here's why. John 3 and verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light is coming to the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does these wicked things hates the light. It does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So John is reminding us that when Jesus came, the light of the world, and Matthew 5 tells us, we are now to be lights in the world. He tells us that when we are lights, standing for truth, a beacon of truth, there's going to be a sharp divide. You're going to have a sharp divide between light and darkness. And you're not going to be able to co-mingle the two. And the darkness is going to hate the light. So why should we be surprised that the church is being opposed today? Had the case out of Nevada, where they were telling governor there in Nevada said the churches had to close, but then he was allowing the casinos to be open, and so this case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the casinos, and man, I heard several uh, respected Christian voices that were just like, "Oh, how in the world can this happen?" And Chief Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, "Oh, oh, how can this go on?" And I'm thinking, why are we surprised when opposition comes? go to California, you have Governor governor, or governor Newsom out there, and he tells all the churches to close, and there's, uh, there, there's about three or four big prominent pastors out there, one of them being John MacArthur, and they say, no, we're not closing, we're staying open. So then they go, and they sue, uh, they, or they petition to have a restraining order put against Grace Community Church and John MacArthur, and there's some other ones that are out there, but they sue to have a restraining order to make them close, so then John MacArthur and the church then sues them back and the judge just, just last week gave them an injunction saying you can meet as long as when you meet inside you're following these, these guidelines and they said yeah we think that we can abide by those but this idea that they are having to go to court to legally or just to have permission to meet as a church that's something that if you had told any of us in this room 50 years ago this would be happening now we'd be thinking no there is no way that we'd ever get to that point point." and yet here we are right now and I'm telling you we can be naive and we keep our head in the sand and we can just assume that it's going to get better tomorrow but if this thing continues to circulate we have no idea what they're going to try to do next we have no idea how much they may try to lead us or try to enforce us or try to demand on us. I'm not going to get political, but I did read a story about uh, the presidential candidate, Joe Biden, how him and his running mate that he has now picked, that he has said that if in one of his political platforms is that he wants to mandate everybody in the U.S. to have to wear a mask in public. Obviously, we're going to have a lot of different opinions about that. But the idea that the government might have the audacity to try to tell us to comply is something that years ago we would never have thought they would have done. And we are on the doorstep of government and the world around us trying to Dictate and trying to legislate compliance not just in our lives personally but on our lives corporately as the church. And I think it's a good time for us to wake up and realize that we should not be surprised at this. We should not be taken back at this. We should understand that if we're going to stand up for light and we're going to be heralds of the light then we are going to face opposition. And so truth divides people and truth unites people. You go back there... To 2 Timothy. And that's what he is trying to get at. He is trying to make sure they understand that this truth, God's truth, the, the truth of who God is and God's word to us, it's going to be a dividing line. So he uses the example to show how you're going to have different people on different sizes. So he uses there in verse 8, he says just as Janus and Jambres. Now I don't know if you've ever been like me, but you've wondered, well who are these people? And some of your Bibles are going to have a little footnote there. If you go down to the of going to have a mark and it's going to say, well go back to Exodus chapter 7 and verse 11. You may turn back to Exodus chapter 7, verse 11, you may read the entire passage and you're not going to find Janus or Jambres mentioned back in Exodus chapter 7. So you may be like me, and you may be like, well, what gives? Paul used these two guys' names. My Bible here uses it as a footnote. It's not mentioned there. What is going on? Well, here's what's happening, and some of your study Bibles may explain this. Janus and Jambres were names that were found in extra-biblical writings, which mean there were other historic writings that were out there. We have uh, Josephus now, which is a Jewish historian that you can go and you can reference to. But what Paul is doing is he is writing to Timothy, and he is referencing these these two names that in that context in that time Timothy would have associated as the two men or one of the two or part of the group of men that came in when Moses is before Pharaoh remember the story? Moses goes before Pharaoh, he says let my people go, Pharaoh says who says? and he says God says and he says who is this God? and Moses says well I'm going to show you who this God is he takes the staff, he throws it down the ground, it becomes a snake and people are like oh, oh wow I don't know why they're saying well, but I don't know why that's amazing. But turns into a snake. He reaches down grabs a snake. It goes back to a stick. Well, Pharaoh, this is in Exodus chapter 7. Pharaoh says, ha, we can do that, causing his magicians. Two of the magicians that came in was Janus and Jambres. They come in. They throw their sticks down. Their sticks turn into snakes. Moses says, I got you beat. His stick that turned into a snake ate. They're snakes. They're snakes that turned into snakes as a way of saying God is still in charge. But what Paul is doing here in 2 Timothy 3 is he's reminding them that there will always be people that will be opposed to the people of God. And so he's, he's using this to say you are going to face opposition if you are standing for the truth, if you are exclaiming the truth, if you are proclaiming the truth, if you are having convictions that point people to the truth, you will always Face opposition. Even in the church today, sometimes you stand up and say, This is what I believe, or this is what the Bible says, you're gonna face opposition. You find that in your homes today. Ezra, just for the first time, just for the first it was such a sweet moment. For the first time yesterday, I told him no, and he said, Why? And you already know what I did. I said, Because I said so. And I've been waiting for this moment. This is like a key moment in the life of this young man that I get to teach him when he says why? Because I said so. And it's this idea that he needs to learn. Even in our home, there's there's questioning about why is this the way it is? Or why are we going to do it this way? There's always questioning. There's always opposition that comes. But what separates us from the world as being the people of God, the kingdom of God, a community of faith, a church, if you will, what separates us is truth, but then also what unites us is truth so what separates us unites us how does it unite us well because when we get around when we're all being based upon the truthfulness of God's Word, then we have unity. And we have one manual to go by. We have one playbook to go by. We have one set of precepts and principles to go by. And so what unites or what divides us from the world unites us as people. And so we think about being on offense and we think about, well, okay, so we're called to be separate, but then how do we unite? We all unite around the Word of God. And so many times, our gods are evident in our witness. It says there in verse 9 in 2 Timothy 3, it says but they will not get very far for their folly would be plain to them, as was that of those two men. He's saying that in that instance, in that scene in Exodus chapter 7, when they come in with their sticks and they're like, oh, Moses, we can do that. Throw their sticks down, turns to the snake, and the next thing you know, they're watching their snake slash stick be eaten by the other snake slash stick. and It's like You all thought you had the power. You all thought you could mimic it. You all thought you could duplicate it. But time after time after time, God continues to show Himself as a sovereign God over everything. Every time we think we've got it figured out, every time that we think that we've got a handle on it, every time we think we have it controlled, every time that we think we know what's going to happen next, God in His sovereignty so many times reminds us that we're not in charge. Reminds us that we don't have control, reminds us that we don't know as much as we think we know, reminds us that we do not have control over everything going on in our lives. And so our gods are often evident in our witness. So he says right there in verse 8 and 9, he's talking about this Janus and Jambres, and Paul says, Think about them. You have a picture there of people that are opposing the church. And you can see their opposition in what they do. And the same can be said about us in the church today. What we are living for in our priorities is evident in our witness. Whether it's our use of time or our use of resources. The places we turn in the moments of crisis. Or our hope and our trust and our confidence. So the things that we say unite us as a people should be evident in our walk and our living every single day. So I've been using this in the reference of being able to identify the team you're on, but let me tweak that a little bit. I want to challenge you this evening not to think of the goal as being knowing what team other people around you are on, may I challenge you that the point of our Christian life is that the others around us are not able to mistake what team you are on. So instead of walking around trying to look and trying to say, well, who what team is that person on? Well, let me try to judge and, and use the sermon and try to evaluate their fruit. Or maybe should I go over here and try to nitpick in their lives. Maybe we should just be consumed saying, I want to live such a life where no one around me has any way to mistake me for what team I'm on. You may say, well, Spence, what about the first four verses? And it gave those 18 different characteristics. Sure. Make sure those 18 characteristics aren't true about you. Make sure those 18 characteristics aren't true about me. What does it mean about truth. That means I know truth. That way I'm making sure those things characterize my life. I should be living in such a way, we should be living in such a way that it's not about being able to say, well, that person on that team and that person on that team, but it'll be living in such a way that we are leaving no doubt in the people's minds around us what team we are on. Put up a basketball goal a couple years ago. Of course, if you think about playing basketball with three boys and a wife and a dad, that's five. Five. You can do the math. That's not even teams. So the question is, well, then how do you divide the teams up? So sometimes mama doesn't play. Well, now it's two on two. But obviously you can tell there's... uh getting short you know it's getting narrower but a couple years ago there was a greater differences in size and, and abilities and so two boys would be on one team and daddy and a boy would be on the other team and so we would play one game and I would be Luke would be on my team or I'd be on Luke's team we play one game and the next game why and I would be on a team the next game Eli would be on a team well the mom would show up and there'd be mama and two boys and daddy and one boy and so we play games and over and over again uh, Luke may be on my team this minute and why may be on my team the next minute and sometimes it is easy to confuse now which boys on my team because <laughs> five minutes ago luke was on my team and now five minutes now why it's on my team so what i was constantly trying to emphasize to the boys is boys instead of me having to remember whose team i'm on why don't my teammate always make it so apparent by their actions and their activities and their speech and the way they're playing the game whose team they're on does that make sense so I'm looking at those boys and saying, Luke, if you're on my team, then it should be apparent because of the way that you're running around or the way that you, what you're doing with the ball, how you're communicating I me, mean, that should be evident. I shouldn't have to wonder, now, which boy's team? I shouldn't have to write it on my hand. I shouldn't have to write it on my forehead. It should be evident in how Luke is acting. So I think that one of the things that we need to consider and one of the things that we need to ponder on is when it comes to our daily lives, when we think about this picture of offense, when we think about this momentum forward of offense, we think about, well, how it is that we get on offense? One of the things that we need to ask ourselves, are we living such a life that people can't mistake what team we are on? Or maybe maybe some more piercing questions. How would God characterize your life? How would God characterize the life that you're living? Would He say faithful? Would He say fickle? Would He say full-time? Would He say part-time? Would He say immature? Would He say means well? How would God characterize your life? Maybe another one. Do you know the truth? Over and over again I can take you to places in Scripture where... The Bible is very clear that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This idea that what separates us divides us. What divides us unites us. What keeps us together is the truthfulness of God's Word. It's not a program. It's not a personality. It's not a a methodology. It's the idea that we are centered around the truthfulness of God's Word. That's what keeps us cohesive because we are living by one set of precepts, one set of rules, one manual, if you will, to live off of. So do I know the truth? Well, how do I know the truth, Spentigo? Gotta spend time in his word. You've got to spend time studying his word. There are too many study helps a day for us to continue in ignorance. For no reason. You can go right down to Mardale there in Edmond, and there is a whole wall full of Bibles in there, and so many of those Bibles now have study tools, study helps in there. Um, there's some that are better than others, or some that are encouraged more than others, but they're there, and you can get them, and you can study God's Word for yourself. There's other teachers out there, whether it's the multimedia over the internet, or the video, the radio. I mean, there are so many opportunities for us to be growing in our faith. And to be learning the truth of God and ingesting that truth so that we can then share it with other people, to just sit there on the bench passing the time. But then there's this last one. The last one that just cuts me so many times is what do people see in me? I want to be on offense. I want my life to be forward momentum for the kingdom of God. I want to be the kind of believer, I want to be the kind of Christian, I want to be the kind of church member that is being a part of the church moving forward. I want to do that and when I think about how do I do that, I need to make sure that what people see in me is a reflection of Jesus Christ. Now is that always going to be a perfect reflection? Absolutely not. Because my sin and because of my flesh and because of the struggles that I have, but the goal that God has given me is to do all things to the glory of God. Whether you eat, drink, or sleep, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God because people should see in me the evidence of the unction of God working through me. You want to see some forward momentum? Get some people that are excited about God. You want to see some forward momentum? See some people that are telling other people about Jesus you want to see some forward momentum start getting some people that are excited about what God has done for them get some people that are excited about what God is doing in their lives you, you talk about bringing kids or students home from summer camp or, or some other event and they're on this high you talk about people the spiritual high why? because they've seen God work they've seen God do stuff God has met with them and they're excited about it and then they get home and they get over it and the same thing happens with church we have a revival come in we have a speaker come in we go through a special sermon study and somebody gets fired up and somebody gets on point and somebody just gets uh, just ripped roaring and just can't wait to do something and then what happens they get over it why? because they stopped fainting the flames and they stopped fueling the fire and every single one of us in this room can relate to what it's like for the stops and the stutters the highs and the lows every single one of us can relate to this idea of being in that moment where we felt excited and we just felt like we were ready to charge Satan with a water gun and then we've also felt times where we felt like we just were dry as toast so the question is, Is what do people see in you? I don't think it's a question of saying, well what team are you on as far as pointing my finger at you, maybe the question is, Is what team, what team do you think I am on? The same thing can be true about you is what team do people see in you?